chapter 1, where we'll read these verses 1 to 18. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes scattered among the nations, greetings. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. If any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God, who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to you. But when you ask, you must believe and not doubt, because the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea blown and tossed by the wind. That person should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. Such a person is double-minded and unstable in all they do. Believers in humble circumstances ought to take pride in their high position, but the rich should take pride in their humiliation, since they will pass away like a wild flower. For... The sun rises with scorching heat and withers the plant. Its blossom falls and its heavy and its beauty is destroyed. In the same way, the rich will fade away even while they go about their business. Blessed is the one who perseveres under trial because having stood the test, that person will receive the crown of life that the Lord has promised to those who love him. When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed. Then, after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. Don't be deceived, my dear brothers and sisters. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. He chose to give us birth through the word of truth, that we might be a kind of first fruits of all he created. Thanks, Carl. Let's pray. Dear Lord and Heavenly Father, we uh, give you praise that you're a loving and a gracious God, uh, a God who is at work in our lives. And we ask, Lord, that you would be at work in our lives now, that uh, you would speak to us through your word, that you would uh, call us to faith in Jesus Christ, and that you would reassure us that what you're doing is good. Lord, we pray particularly for those who are struggling. Uh, for those who are undergoing trials, that you would speak mercifully into their lives. Uh, Father, we ask it for Jesus' sake. Amen. Well, we're starting a, uh, a, a new series this morning on the book of James, as, uh, as Chris has said. Uh, James, you may or may not know, was uh, a leader in the early church. He was the brother of Jesus. He was, uh, you meet him in Acts chapter 15, he's kind of the leader of the church in Jerusalem. He was not one of the 12 apostles, but he was a key figure 
uh, in the early life and ministry of the church. And the book of James is often called a book of wisdom. It's kind of like the New Testament version of the Old Testament book of Proverbs. It's a book designed to help us know how to live for Jesus, a book designed to help us to be wise in living in God's world according to God's ways. Uh, And in the opening part of this book of James that we're looking at today, James is focusing on trials and in particular the wisdom that we need to live through times of difficulty and times of trial. Uh, So for some of us, I think what this uh, passage in James is saying will be immediately helpful. We'll hear it and we'll think, yes, this is speaking to me because for you the struggle is real, The, the struggle of life is really real. Uh, you will hear these words and it will resonate with you because at the moment life is tough uh, and you're being pushed to the limits. But for many of us, we might be sitting here and thinking, well, this is not me. Uh, I'm, not, I'm not going through that at the moment. Life is not difficult. Actually, it's, it's actually pretty good. I'm really thankful to God for how things are going. But it's still important for those of us in that situation to hear what James has to say to us. God wants us to learn the wisdom of living in his world. And as Don Carson says in his book, uh, How Long, O Lord, he says it's so important for us to learn how to suffer well before we actually get there because what happens when we get to suffering, if we're not prepared, is that we, we don't know what to do. And it's so much harder to learn how to suffer well once we're there Uh, than it is to try and prepare ourselves beforehand. So even if you're not going through a really difficult time at the moment, please hear these words from God as something, a gift from God to you to help you to know how to live for him in what might face you in the future. James is trying to give us all, wherever wherever we're at, God's perspective. Uh, He wants us to zoom out on our lives and to see uh, what God sees. So the whole of this section that we read is really about uh, trials and how we respond to that. You see that in the way that the section begins with trials and then ends with trials as well. And in the middle, James is talking about wisdom and kind of different perspectives uh, in trials. So he begins with this encouragement to face trials with joy. He says in verse 2, Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds. Notice that what James says is actually quite different to what we normally say. So what we normally say is something like this. Well, no one can expect to really enjoy themselves in the middle of trials, but what happens is that at the end of what you've experienced, at the end of all the difficulties, you can look back and only then can you actually experience any joy. So we say, no, joy is not possible in the midst of trials, it's only possible afterwards. But James is actually turning that on its head and he's saying, no, actually what I want for you is to be able to be in the midst of trials, in the midst of difficulties, in the midst of suffering, and actually to be able to have joy in that. Not later on, but in the middle. That's a big call. And he says that we ought to be able to do that no matter what the trial. He says that we ought to uh, consider it joy when we face trials of all kinds. We can do that, James says, 
when we understand what God is using them to do in us. So he goes on in verse 3, Consider your trials joy because you know that the testing in your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. When we see what God is doing through trials, it changes our perspective on them. James says that God is using them to test our faith. But God is not using trials to test our faith in the sense of God sitting in heaven thinking to himself, well, I wonder if Bob's a Christian. Uh, I might just give him a test and, uh, and then I'll know for sure. That's not what he means when he says that God is testing our faith. The language comes from the process used to refine gold and silver. Uh, so what happened would... What would happen is that people would dig, you know, gold out of the ground, but it would be mixed up with all kinds of impurities. And in order to kind of weed those impurities out and to be left with pure gold, they would heat it to a high temperature. And as they did that, as they heated it, some of the impurities would just kind of be burned off. But the rest of the impurities would kind of float to the surface and you'd have this liquid gold kind of sitting in the bottom and the impurities on the top. And you'd just come along and you could scoop off uh, those impurities and you're left at the end with this, uh, with this pure gold. Uh, it, was, it was a testing process. It was a refining process. And James is saying that that's what God is doing with our faith. He's proving it. He's refining it. He's purifying it. And he does that through trials. So like with gold, you can't get the muck out. You can't get the pure stuff unless you heat it up to a high temperature. James is saying it's a bit the same in our lives. Like with gold, we're mixed up with all kinds of impurities and all kinds of sins and all kinds of imperfections. And unfortunately, many of those are so deeply embedded into us that unless we suffer, it's, that it's only through suffering that God can actually extract those from us. They're so deeply embedded into us that apart from suffering, this side of eternity, there's almost no other way that God can clean us up. One of the few things that can prize our fingers off sin are the high temperatures of trials and the deep and difficult uh, struggles of suffering. But here, I think, is the earth-shattering reality which really helps us to grasp what God is doing and to see these things with joy. And that is that what God is doing in suffering... Is not, he's not doing that in order to take something good from us. God is actually doing it in order to give us something that we lack. God is not causing us to suffer in order to take something from us. God is actually causing us to suffer to give us something that we lack. James says that the ultimate purpose of God's refining is to teach us to persevere, to teach us to keep going, rather than flagging and giving up the faith. God's ultimate aim is that we reach the very end, that we make it, that we receive the thing which we long for, which is eternity with God. And his aim is to make us mature and complete so that we would lack nothing. So we might lack a deep trust in God or we might lack an overwhelming sense of the love of God. We might be hooked on some sin or other which is taking us away from God and destroying us. We might be besotted with something which is not God. And when God tests and tries our faith, he does it to give us what we lack. 
He does it not to take, us some, take from us something good, but to give us something that we didn't have and something that often we never even knew that we didn't have. How often is it that the very thing that trials do is actually to open our eyes to see what we don't have? We think we, think we have everything. And then we suffer when we realise that we have nowhere near as much as we thought we did. We see for the first time what it was that we really love in, loved instead of loving God. We see for the first time in suffering what it is that we really trusted instead of trusting in God. We see in suffering for the first time what it was that we really lived for instead of living for God. We thought we were doing well, but actually the suffering opens our eyes to see what it was that we lacked. And not just to open our eyes to it, but actually to give us what it was that we lacked. James says when we understand that, we can begin to understand God's purposes. We can begin to understand what the writer of Hebrews says, which is that the trials and disciplines from God are not a sign of his anger at us, but actually a sign of his deep and abiding love. His fiercely jealous love in which he desires the absolute best for us, which is to be freed from the sin which is destroying us. I love these words from the Christian theologian Wes Hill who says, Engaging with God and entering the transformative life of the church does not mean we get a kind of free pass and unconditional love that leaves us where we are. Instead, we get a fiercely demanding love, a divine love that will never let us escape from its purifying, renovating and ultimately healing grip. In the long run, the cruelest thing that God could do would be to leave us alone with our desires, to spare us the affliction of his refining care. James says, with, with that bigger perspective in view, when we see that God is using trials uh, to do us good, it enables us to consider those trials as joy, even as we're in the middle of them. And yet it's important, I think, for us to realise as well that that's not automatic. We don't just absorb that perspective. We actually need to adopt that perspective intentionally. James says we need to take deliberate steps to think in that way. He says we need to consider it. We need to reckon it. We need to think of our situation contrary to what we might naturally think of it. We need to remind ourselves of what God is doing. So you lose your job and you tell yourself, I don't understand what God is doing, but I know that he's doing me good. Or you fail an exam and you tell yourself, I don't know what God is doing, but I know that he's teaching me to persevere. Or you lose someone that you love, someone that you love deeply dies. And you tell yourself, God is not taking something from me, but God is actually giving me something that I lacked. But it's not just big things, actually, is it? It can be small things, too. Uh, your phone stops working, the car dies, you trash dinner and you're left with nothing to eat. Uh, you know, <laughs> the family's saying, where's dinner? And you think, well, well actually, yeah, it didn't really work out as well as it hoped. Uh, in all those things, we need to remind ourselves that God is teaching us to persevere and giving us what we lack. I discovered I'm not, this week I'm not the only one 
who responds to crises poorly. Uh, and, isn't it the tr- and isn't it true that we respond the worst to the smallest crises? Yeah. <laughs> I see some people laughing in recognition. But I, I remember vividly this one time making myself a hot drink. And, uh, and, and, I, and I went to get it out of the microwave. And, and as I... It, it caught on the lip of the microwave tray and it all just spilled all over the floor and I think the mug broke and I thought to myself, that's it, I can't go on, my life is over. We laugh, but isn't it true that actually even in the small things, we find them so overwhelming and we need, and it's, it's not just in the big things. And in fact, the way that we train ourselves to survive the big things and to suffer the big things is actually by reminding ourselves in the small things that God is doing us good, that he's teaching us to persevere, that he's giving us what we, what we lack, not taking us from us the good that we think that we have. That doesn't mean uh, that we need to pretend that pain doesn't exist. Uh, James is not calling us to pretend that the trials that we experience don't hurt or that they're not hard. It's not a kind of a binary choice of sorrow or joy. Rather, he's calling us that in the midst of difficulties and in the midst of sadness to kind of see an additional perspective. That is to look beyond what, we, what we're experiencing and to see what God is doing, to see that God is doing us good. We need to consider what Jesus did. That is, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of God the Father. That is, Jesus reckoned that the misery of the cross was trumped by the unfathomable greatness of what God was doing in the resurrection on the other side. It's not that Jesus went to the cross and he said, well, well, this is just a walk in the park. But at the same time as suffering deeply, he could see the joy of what God was doing. Joy is not mutually exclusive with sorrow. We can experience both of them at the same time because the joy and the power of the resurrection is working backwards into our present lives and touching the misery of this world and the misery of our lives and turning it to good. It's because of the power of the resurrection and the glory of Christ that we can consider our trials as joy. So James encourages us in the first place then to see our trials differently, to look at them with different eyes. But beyond that, he he then goes on to talk about wisdom in the midst of trials. So there's a link here with what he's just said. He's saying that what we need, if if uh, God is giving us what we lack, and one of the things that we may lack in particular is wisdom. He says in verse 5, If any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God, who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to you. In order to have this perspective, in order to think of our trials as joy, we need wisdom. We need the wisdom to understand the world as God understands it, the wisdom to look beyond our predicament, the wisdom to see our present circumstances in the light of God's great gospel plan. We need the wisdom to trust that God really does love us because we so easily doubt that. And how do we get that wisdom which we need? Well, James says it's actually very simple. What we need to do is to ask, to ask God, and God will give it to us. James says God gives generously without finding fault. We know that if in the middle of trials or whatever situation in life, we know that if we ask God for wisdom, that he'll give it to us, that he'll help us to understand what's going on and how we can live through what we're experiencing. 
But I think a really interesting question to ask is, how many times in the midst of trials have you ever actually done that? How many times in the middle of a trial have you actually prayed for wisdom? I was thinking about that this week and I thought, I don't know if in my entire life, if I've ever prayed for wisdom in the middle of trials, or if I've, whether that's my own trial or somebody else's. You know, if I've sat down with someone who's, who's struggling, I don't know if I've ever prayed that what they would have is wisdom. I think I'd pray for perseverance and survival and that they'd be able to get on with their life and that they'd be able to trust God. But I'm not sure that I've ever prayed for wisdom. But actually, James says that that's the thing that we need most of all. Not even perseverance, but wisdom. Why? Because unless we understand God, unless we understand God's ways, God's purposes, unless we understand what it means to live for God in the midst of a crooked and broken world, unless we understand that, unless we have wisdom, unless we have God's wisdom, God's perspective on our lives, unless we have that, we can't persevere. That doesn't mean that when we ask for wisdom, we get all the answers. But it does mean that God enables us to understand him and to trust him. Maybe not understand our circumstances, but understand him. And there's a big difference between those two things. What we need is to understand and know God. And James says that God is willing to give that to us if we ask him. And yet... James, having said that God gives to us without finding fault and generously and all that, James goes on to say in verse 6, but when you ask, you must believe and not doubt because the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea blown and tossed by the wind. That person should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. Such a person is double-minded and unstable in all they do. Well, that kind of sounds like God does find fault, doesn't it? He said, well, ask, God will give it to you. Don't worry about it, whether he'll say yes or no. And then he says, but don't be double-minded because then you won't get anything. What's James trying to say? I think we need to understand that what James is talking about is not faith and doubt with respect to the outcome of our requests for wisdom. He's not saying you should ask God for wisdom uh, and unless you really, 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 really believe, God's not going to give that to you. That's not what he's saying. No, God is a generous God who gives without finding fault. What James is talking about is the whole shape of our relationship with God. That is, God is pleased to give wisdom to those who have entrusted themselves to him. Faith here is not faith in the outcome of our request for wisdom, but faith here is our trust in God through Jesus Christ. God gives wisdom to those who trust and follow Jesus, those who have a relationship of faith and trust with him. The opposite of that kind of person, the person who doesn't trust and follow Jesus, is the person who's all over the place, who one moment is giving their life to God, the next moment is taking it back. Uh, James says they're like a wave on the sea. They're being blown around. Uh, they're going in every which way. Apparently, they're following Jesus one moment, and then the next moment, they're going their own way and doing their own thing. And James says that's the kind of person who shouldn't expect to receive anything from God. It's a person who's not really in a relationship with God through Jesus, who hasn't entrusted their lives to Jesus. The first step to receiving wisdom then is 
giving our lives to God. The first step to wisdom is faith and trust in Jesus Christ. If our lives don't belong to God in the first place, then how can we expect him to give us wisdom about our lives? Or how can we expect him to give us wisdom about how to live for Jesus? If our lives don't belong to Jesus. (laughs) Or how can we expect him to give us wisdom about how he's making us more like Christ? If we're not actually in a relationship with Christ, it doesn't make sense. Now, it's only when our lives are in God's hands, in Jesus' hands, that our prayer for wisdom actually means anything. It's only when we've been adopted as children into his family that through the blood of Jesus, our prayer for wisdom is met by a loving Father who gives to us generously and without finding fault. If our lives are in God's hands, in Christ's hands, then we can ask for wisdom and we know that in the midst of our trials, whatever they are, God helps us to understand. So God is using trials for our good and we should ask for wisdom so that we can understand. And then James goes on to give a particular illustration of that or give a particular example of that that seemed to be quite pressing for the church that he was writing to. He says in verse 9, Believers in humble circumstances ought to take pride in their high position, but the rich should take pride in their humiliation since they will pass away like a wildflower. For the sun rises with a scorching heat and withers the plant, its blossom falls and its beauty is destroyed. In the same way, the rich will fade away even while they go about their business. So although at first this kind of seems a little bit unrelated, uh, it seems to be that the connection that James has here is that he's focusing on the kind of wisdom that this particular church needs in their present situation. So there are hints in this letter that the people that James is writing to are struggling with, some some of them at least, are struggling with financial difficulties. And so the question for them, the particular question for them in their trials is, what does that look like? What does wisdom look like in their situation of financial struggle? Well, James says that what they ought to do, the way that they ought to think, is to take pride in their high position, he says. That is, even though they're poor, even though they're humbled by their poverty, they ought to realise that their position is actually better than it seems. That because God is doing something through their difficulty, they're in a much better position than they realise. They might be financially poor, but actually they're spiritually rich. On the flip side, James says, those who are rich, who are apparently self-sufficient, should realise that their position is not anywhere near as good as they think that it is. So just like the uh, flowers of the fields, one day they're, uh, they're pretty, one day they're rich, the next day it's all gone. Uh, Only a decade ago, we experienced the global financial crisis. And although Australia was relatively untouched uh, compared to the rest of the world, some people, uh, both here and overseas, were hammered. Uh, In America, the collapse, which was the result, which precipitated the whole thing, the collapse was the result of bad home loans uh, and and, and then the subsequent collapse of the entire housing market in the US. And there were people, middle-class people, people like you and me, people who had decent jobs, who were on their way to paying off their home, who in the space of uh, you know, a few weeks, a few months, were out of their houses, out of their jobs, living in cars, in church parking lots, living in motels. Just like that. Security, nothing. 
destitution. A few weeks ago was the 30th anniversary of the 1987 stock market crash. Uh, In a single day, billions of dollars were wiped off the Australian stock market and billions of dollars were wiped off stock markets across the world. Uh, Get this, AMP, which at the time had $12 billion from its various funds invested in the Australian stock market, lost in a single day a quarter of the value of those funds. Lost $3 billion dollars. Today we might be fine, tomorrow we might wake up with nothing. A fire might burn down your house and leave you with nothing. Uh, You might have a stroke and you could be left paralysed. You might be diagnosed with something like motor neurone disease or the stock market might crash or a war might start. Who knows what's going to happen? Taking pride in their humiliation means that these well-off people need to acknowledge that their position is not nearly as certain as they think it is. And James says that's real wisdom. That is, what we need to do is to see our situation, whether rich or poor, whether going well or not going well, we need to see our situation in the light of the gospel, in the light of who we are in Christ. We need, to see, uh, we need the wisdom to see that suffering is not as bleak as it, as it appears because God is actually using it to do us good. And we need the wisdom to see that smooth sailing isn't anywhere near as good as it seems because we're not as immune from the storms of life as we think that we might be. We need to keep reminding ourselves that our future is not defined by our present, good or bad, but our future is defined by our relationship with Jesus Christ and our loving Father who loves us and is working all things together for good. We need to keep looking at our house and saying to ourselves every day, this is not my security. This is not my home. This is not where things are at. It could all be gone tomorrow. And we need to keep looking at our jobs and saying, I could be out of work in a week. I could go to work today and the boss could say, I'm sorry, we're going to have to let you go. And we need to keep looking at our attainments, our degrees, our professional qualifications, our, uh, all the things that we've done in life and reminding ourselves, this is not a guarantee of my future. What I did yesterday does not guarantee what's going to happen today or tomorrow or in six years from now. Why do we need to do that? Because James says that's how we endure trials. And trials are worth enduring because, verse 12, blessed is the one who perseveres under trial because having stood the test, that person will receive the crown of life that the Lord has promised to those who love him. Even though it can be hard to persevere, it's worth it because at the end of it is the crown of life. At the end of it is all that we've been suffering for, all that we've been persevering for, what God has promised us. That is eternity with him in his loving and glorious presence. So God is using these things for our good and we need wisdom to see that, uh, particularly for these people and for us as well, I think, in the issues of poverty and wealth. But last of all, we need to understand, the last thing we need to understand with respect to trials is the relationship between these trials and temptation. James says in verse 13, When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. Now, the shift to speaking about temptation might seem a bit strange to us, 
But it helps to know that the word in verse 2, which is translated as trials, is the same word which is used here to talk about temptations. It's the same word and it can mean two different things, trials and temptations. Which is to say that James is actually still talking about the same issue. What he's saying is that when God tests us in order to strengthen our faith, we shouldn't think that at the same time as testing us, God is actually tempting us with sin. Uh, Now, why might we confuse those two things? We might confuse them because often when life gets hard, we are tempted to sin. So money gets tight, and when money is tight, you're more tempted to think, well, I'll just tweak things on the tax return a bit. Uh, or when money is tight, you're more tempted to think, well, I'll just, I'll just download that album you know, from, for free from the internet, you know, or I'll just get, grab that film for free. But we're, you know, we still need to enjoy ourselves, right? <laughs> or uh, when you suffer at the hands of somebody else, for however that might be, it's at that time, isn't it, that you're more tempted to take retaliation. It's at that time that you're more tempted to be bitter. Or if you're hectic and frazzled by the demands of life, you're more tempted in that situation often to be impatient and to be loveless. Uh, So too, a disappointing life, a disappointing career can be the doorway to adultery. Uh, Or a disappointing and hard day at work can be the precursor to uh, abuse of alcohol. Uh, Or the loss of something dear to you can give way to the temptation to abandon God completely. Well, if God's not going to give me that, why should I even bother with him? Now, we might think in those situations that God is not just testing us, he's also tempting us, James says. But James wants us to realize that that's not the case. God is testing us, yes, he's he's purifying our faith, but he's not tempting us with evil. That doesn't come from God, that comes from within us. James says that temptation can't be from God for the simple fact that God isn't tempted by evil. That is, God is not even remotely attracted to evil. There's nothing about evil which is endearing to him. It's absolutely opposed to everything about him. And if God hates evil, why on earth would he try and attract anybody to do it? Why would he tempt anyone to do that? It doesn't make sense. Instead, James says in verse 14, each person is tempted when they're dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed. Then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. So this is the pattern. Life is tough. Then from within us, from within our own selves, our evil desires well up and make us long for evil. Those desires, James says, kind of gestate, like a baby or like an alien or something like that. Not pretty. And we nurse those sinful desires, and eventually those sinful desires give birth to sinful actions. And sin, James says, left unchecked, not dealt with at the cross, in repentance and faith, sin eventually gives birth to death. The implication of that is that temptation is not itself sin. It's not the idea of adultery which is sin or or the idea of stealing from someone which is sin or the idea of cheating on our taxes 
or the idea of getting angry or the idea of taking retaliation. It's not those things in and of themselves which are sin. What matters is our response to those things. So do you embrace that idea and kind of nurse it and feed it? Or do you stomp it down? So, for example, someone does something unkind to you. Uh, and then the idea comes to retaliate. It pops into your head and you have a choice. What are you going to do? Are you going to nurse that idea and let it grow and fester? To kind of keep going over your options for how you might get back at them? Uh, and eventually what will happen is that, that the nursing of that bitterness and the nursing of that hatred eventually will come out in the way that you act, in the things that you say to that person in the things that you say to other people, uh, in the way that you treat them. Uh, you can nurse the idea of retaliation and sinful desires will grow into sinful actions. Or you can acknowledge that idea for what it is, a bad idea, a sinful idea. You can acknowledge that idea to God and ask him to spare you from that, to spare you from going down that path. Lord, I'm... You know, I'm thinking of retaliating. I know that's not right. You've got, to, you've got to rescue me from that because that's not the way that you want me to live. That's not what honours Christ. What honours Christ is showing compassion and forgiveness. Is temptation sin? According to James, it isn't. But the issue is when we give that free reign, when our desires take hold of that idea and nurse it uh, and it gives birth to sinful actions. Temptation will always be part of our experience. Jesus was tempted just as we are, but the difference was that he never allowed that temptation to gain a foothold in his life. He never allowed it to fester and to grow and to give birth to sin, but he turned away from it and turned to God. But James's main point is not that evil and temptation, uh, you know, is that temptation itself is not sin. His main point is that evil and temptation doesn't come from God, that it comes from us. Instead, he wants us to realize, he wants us to see that so that we would understand that what comes from God is not evil but good. That's where he wants us to land. He says in verse 16, Don't be deceived, my dear brothers and sisters. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. He chose to give us birth through the word of truth that we might be a kind of firstfruits of all he created. So whereas sin gives birth to death, it doesn't end well. God gives birth uh, through the word of life to, uh, to, through the word of truth, sorry, to life. God gives us the life that we long for. What James wants us to see is that God is good to us. God is not uh, trying to trip us up. God is trying to do us good. And the problem for us is, I think, that when we face trials, we instinctively think that what God is trying to do is not good. Like James's readers, we think that God is trying to trip us up. God is trying to make our life miserable. But James wants us to know that what God is doing is good. We should never think that God is trying to make us fall. Rather, we should understand that God is seeking to do us good through Jesus Christ. If we belong to him, if you belong to him through Christ, then God is showering down good gifts on you. 
He's not tempting you to evil, but refining you to be complete and pure. He's giving you what you lack and taking away what is destroying you. That is, James wants us to see all through this passage, he wants us to have the wisdom to see that whatever is going on in our lives, God is good and God is doing us good. And because of that, we can rejoice. If we think God is doing us evil, we'll never be able to rejoice. We'll be angry with God. Why are you doing this to me? But if we really believe that God is the father of good gifts, then we will be able to rejoice. We will have the wisdom to see the world for what it is. We need to see, James says, the unfailing goodness of God whenever trials come. And when we see that, we can rejoice. Let's pray. Dear Lord and Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are a God of unfailing goodness and kindness and of unfailing grace and mercy. Uh, And Lord, we ask that you would give us the wisdom to see that and to realise that in all the situations of our lives. Lord, some of us, uh, even at this moment, are perhaps struggling deeply. Uh, Lord, perhaps only you know how difficult life is. And Lord, it is not an easy thing to hear the words of James, to consider it pure joy when you face trials of many kinds. But Lord, we pray that you would give them wisdom, that you might open their eyes to see the wonder of your grace and that we might be privileged to witness their joy in very difficult and trying circumstances. Lord, what a great gift that would be to us, to all of us, to witness to the joy of the gospel taking hold of the lives of those who are in deep misery and in deep pain. And Lord, we pray that you would also grant wisdom to those of us who are not struggling, uh, that even in the small things of life and the small trials of life, that we would exercise faith and trust in you, so that one day when life is very difficult, when we do face death, when we face our own death or the death of those near to us, or we face tragedy or deep loss or financial ruin, uh, that when we face those things, Lord, that we would have the wisdom to consider them joy and to see what you're doing, to really believe that you're not trying to undo us, but to make up for what we lack. So we ask these things for Jesus' sake. Amen.